Good morning. Uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, I'm Trey Hill. I'm a psychologist over at Covenant Counseling and Education Center. I wear glasses now. It's a big transition in my life. Anyway, this will come up later. I, I, I've always had like 2010 vision or like even better, just like was a superstar with vision. And right after I turned 40, things started to change. And I remember, hey, what's up? I, I remember laying in bed, my wife would be looking at something on Facebook and of course would want to show me on the phone and I'd always be pushing it away from my eyes saying, I can't see that. She's like, Are you, you think you have a vision problem now? I'm like, I don't have a vision problem. I'm Trey Hill. I got perfect vision. <laughs> I had a vision problem. <laughs> so she made an appointment for me and, and now I get to wear these sometimes. Um, let, me, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll dive in. God, thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this morning. We surrender this time to you. Pray that your Holy Spirit would work within our hearts, that you would go beyond whatever words I use, whatever material I've put together, just to speak to us. We desire to honor you in our relationships, particularly here in our marriages. We want you to transform us. I pray that you would help us with humility to be able to see what we need to see and then give us the courage to do what we need to do. I also pray that you help us to embrace just the messiness um, and the ambiguity that's involved and still find a positive course within that. Um, So guide us in this talk. Open our hearts to hear. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, let me do a quick recap from last week. Uh, the, The theme here for the five weeks is the narrative of marriage, and I think the subtitle was Elements of Life-Giving and Sacred Relationships. And last week we were talking about the first part of a story, which is the setting. Essentially looking around and saying, well, where are we in our marriages right now? How how did we get to this point? What exactly is happening now? What is the story that we're living out? And are we happy with this story? Do we like this story? Is it complete? Is it missing something? Is there something else we want to add to it? Taking time to put your finger on your own pulse, so to speak, and then see where you need to go. And and I told a little bit of story, uh, a few stories about my wife and I. So just to give you some of the context for us, I was going to share a couple of things. Yeah, this was the setting. Remember the story about our first date? So this is Millie, the dog that brought us together. And, and keeps us together many times. She said a few times in that first year of marriage, I think the only reason you're staying is Millie. Yeah, I didn't say anything at that point. I, I, I'm smart sometimes. Uh, and for those of you who haven't met her, so here's, here's my wife looking all prim and proper and poised and together on our wedding day because she's very much like that. And then here's me on my wedding day. I, I have some issues. The funny part about this, so you can see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then eight. We actually had ten attendants on each side, which is which is another funny story from this. My wife, how, how many bridesmaids do, would you guess my wife wanted to have in our wedding? You're close. Fourteen. Fourteen. And I said, baby, I'm a guy. I don't, I don't know. Fourteen people myself. And we were at some function where there was, it wasn't the wedding planner, but an assistant or something was talking to us. And she was saying, 
Well, Trey, you know, the, the wedding day is really more about the wife. It's about the bride. So you probably need to go along with what she wants. And so I was saying, okay, okay. And she didn't know the number. And she turned to Jenny and said, by the way, how many people are you hoping to have? And Jenny says, 14. And she goes, there's no way, 10 at most. So it's the whole theme. If someone else tells her, she'll, so we did 10, which was good. So there's 10 people wandering around. Mostly they probably didn't want to be in the picture with me when I was doing this. Um, I didn't grow up much because here we are in Costa Rica on vacation. And this is a dangerous pose because you do too much of this, you're going to end up with one of these things here. <laughs> so this is, this is our little Sophie that I, I talked about last week. And just to give you a close-up, there she is. She's just ridiculous, isn't she? I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, she definitely looks like my wife. <laughs> she does not look like me. Um, so there's, there's sort of the, the setting um, that's at least the fun version. As I mentioned last time, what I was encouraging each of you to think about too is we've had our rocky moments um, from the inconsistencies and in how we've related to the vast differences in our personalities. And for those of you who were on the marriage, I don't know if we mentioned all this, but I mentioned this briefly last time, my history of depression, which had a big spike during the first year of our marriage, which really was hellacious for Jenny to go through. So that, that's the undercurrent too. We're at this place having come through the fun stuff, all the romantic stuff, and then these hard times to say, this is where we are. So now we're moving on to the second part of a story. And I won't, I won't quiz y'all, but remember a basic story, you have a setting to it. Okay, wh- wh- where are you? Where is this taking place? You have a plot, right? What's happening? What's the action? What do we do in this? You have the conflict, which we'll get to next week. You have the characters. Who is this story really about? And then there's a theme. What's the purpose of all this? So we're examining this in a few different ways. So today we're talking about the story of relationship itself. How, how do we do this, right? What's the way to get this done? Um, first thing we'll look at is, what are the different explanations of how this works? So you've got the culture around us. What are the messages from culture about how we do relationships? Monogamous, yeah, that's that's pretty much valued in this culture. What are the messages from the culture? Anything goes. Anything goes, right? There may not be one set way how it's supposed to happen. You may choose A, B, C, you say tomato, I say tomato. Anything goes, that's certainly out there. What other cultural messages exist? Do what feels good, right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very few. Yeah. And fewer all the time. Yeah. A lesson. A lessening of them. Right. Yeah. So things that may have been assumptions in a previous generation, maybe uh, possibilities, ideas, suggestions. That's good. Yeah. It's about you. As long as it's working for you, it's a good deal. Keep going. If not, no big deal. Yeah. There you go. This this whole marital thing is about my self fulfillment how I'm doing, if this is working for me, if you're helping me, let's keep going. But if it's not, it might be in my best interest to go somewhere else. Yeah, that's great. Any others that you can think of? Yeah, those are good ones. Let me add a couple more that I was, I was pulling together from looking around some of the research. It, you see those eHarmony commercials on TV, right? Y'all seen these? What's, what's the essential message of an eHarmony commercial? 
there's somebody out there for you and and how, besides using their service how, how do you locate who that person is <laughs> there you go Bing. wife yeah yeah I mean do you know what's their what's their formula for putting people together do you know what they do yeah, interests, personality styles, values, and stuff like this. It, it's sort of the modern-day version of an arranged marriage, essentially. Now, there's a lot of good to this, but, but there's a lie underneath it that says, what this is about is finding the correct match. If you find this soulmate, it's going to be easy, because it, after, it is all about you. So if you find someone else that just matches the way it's about you, y'all are going to do great, eliminating the need for hard work, Eliminating the need for disappointment, it just sort of magically, magically occurs. Okay. Um, a couple other views from the culture, as well as that marriage is more of a contract, it's an agreement versus a spiritual perspective. This is a covenant relationship, right? And a contract, maybe you break the contract. Covenant doesn't get broken. So there is that sense. I think several people said of it's possibly temporary. If it works, let's keep it going. But also in a contract, you have contracts to protect everybody's best interests. I have rights. This is what I need to get out of this. And if you're not fulfilling your side of the contract, I have a valid reason to be upset with you. Versus a covenantal, covenantal perspective, which is quite different. And here's one more I'll just throw out that probably all of us, and you saw my little daughter in there, this is the danger we fall into, is marriage is really all about the kids. Right? You're there to come together so you can produce good offspring that go out and they're great citizens in the world, which is fantastic. But maybe we've missed another part of the story if we're saying it's just, just about the kids. Okay. And by the way, as we go through this, my whole point in this is I'm just trying to get you to think about the story you're living, what you're trying to do. We're not going to be able to go into depth with all these areas, but if we just plant a few seeds, so some of the stuff I may be blowing by pretty quickly, some of it may not make sense, Hopefully something does, but just take the seeds that may fit fit for you. Uh, another way to think about how you would explain what we're supposed to do in marriage is look at the examples. People that you know who've been successful, who've had long marriages that have been happy and fulfilling. Y'all can probably think of some people you know like that. What are the characteristics or attributes of those people? Selflessness, that's a great one. Steadfast, right? Kind of steady as you, we're going we're gonna to keep pushing through. Other things. Accepting. Accepting we've got. Empathetic, empathetic. yes. Right. Not, not pathetic, but empathetic, right? <laughs> you guys are pathetic. You've been married 50 years. And there, what was the other one over here? I mean, just. Yeah. Yeah. And they have faith, yeah, which is correlated with uh, successful marriages, by the way. In case you're curious, it's good to keep going to church. Um, here's some of what the research on successful marriages would say. It's a lot of what you said. Um, one of the big ones, this is kind of matches a, a spiritual perspective, too. It says, don't just commit to the partner you're with, but commit to marriage itself. Meaning there is something bigger than you going on here. Now, for us, we realize this is our relationship with Christ that is dictating what we do and guiding us through. But it's not just about me and, and my happiness or, or, or just about you, but we're living on a bigger story about how we're a reflection of God's love. They also said, and, and actually all these things that they said are backed up by the, by the research, friendship is just as important as the romantic love. That will be the thing that keeps you steadfast, keeps you pulling through, 
combining that with the commitment. They also said, talk to each other about things that matter and don't keep score. Okay, so there's a couple of other views. And then, of course, we've got the story of Scripture. And we could go into a million different verses. We're going to look at one, then we're going to look at some of the scientific explanations. And I don't know why that shifted like that. All right, so this is Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Let me, let me read this, then we're going to break it down for a minute or two. So the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, I'll preface this. I'm not a biblical scholar, but I consulted biblical scholars when I was looking at this. I think there's a few key things when we're thinking about what this story is supposed to be that we should take notice of here. And I've sort of highlighted the words or bolded the words in there. The first one, just from the beginning, it is not good for the man to be alone, right? God created us for relationship with him, but also in this example, he is living in a relationship with God right here. But in this human element, I'm not supposed to be alone. If there's one basic theme of these stories, it's how do we stay connected? How do we stay connected? It's not good for us to be in this alone place. This is why when your husband is working multiple hours and you're at home, you understand, but you miss that. Or if the wife is busy hauling the kids everywhere and then the romance in the relationship has been neglected, there's an aloneness, you miss that. Any disconnection helps you to feel that aloneness. Second word here is this word helper. And by the way, I love, I love the way this is written because he names all these animals and then they say, but, but um, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. As if they were looking around, you know, and, what about the pig? <laughs> I don't think so. How about the giraffe, Adam? Long legs? You like that? They couldn't find anything. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> um, yeah, no suitable helper, helper was found. A couple things about that word helper. You've probably heard this, the help meet. Uh, it, it, any idea what that word is supposed to mean? Partner? Yeah, it's certainly not slave or servant. Um, yeah, it, it, it does denote partnership. Here's some of the things from the original language. Again, this is where the biblical scholars uh, help me out. It's not a demeaning term in any way. In fact, that same exact word is used, used to refer to God in the Scripture, specifically the Holy Spirit. I will send a helper. I will send a counselor to you. It's the same word. Right, so any sense of there being this you know, positional difference, like, look, I, you, you need this person. So the definition there is also someone who can provide ethical, spiritual, physical help to someone who is in great need. 
So thinking of the helper, the man is in great need to have this other person with him, not to be alone, to go through the journey. That's what the helper means. Another interesting piece here, there is a focus on the weakness, inability, and incompleteness of the one in need. Okay? We're not supposed to be alone. The helper is there to kind of solve that aloneness for us. Okay. A couple other things. Boat of my bone, flesh of my flesh de- denotes the unity, the unity of this relationship. Then another interesting piece. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father, right? This whole part here. So this is this leave and cleave idea. A couple things to take note of. At this point in the story, how can Adam leave his mother and father, right? I mean, who's Adam's mother and father? Where are they, right? This doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So we're talking about something beyond just this physical idea of leaving because there was, there was nobody for him to leave in that sense. Second, in the Jewish custom, it was actually uh, the opposite. The woman would leave her clan and her tribe to go be with the man. So why is he saying the man will leave his father and mother? What is he, what is he getting at with this? Um, another piece with this is it denotes that the woman is not property, simply going along. I think that if there's a main point here, it's the equality of these two people. Okay, so in the custom, the woman goes to be with the man. But I'm saying even spiritually, the man is leaving to go be with the woman. And then, let's see how we're doing on time. Okay, we're not too bad. The second part, the cleaving, has this notion, I think someone said it over here, this deep commitment. That was your word earlier, right? There's a deep commitment. It's the same word that's used in the story of Ruth. When Naomi's lost her husband and her two sons, and then uh, Orpah and Ruth, who are now bereft of their husband, are deciding what to do. And she says, you know what? Go find another man. And so Orpah says, see ya. I think I'll go do that. And Ruth says, no, where you go, I will go. I, I will cling to you. It's the same word, meaning I will forsake what's important for me in this human realm to go cleave to you, to hold on to you. So here's the question I would ask and we, in us thinking about our own marriages. This idea of leaving and cleaving, as a man or as a woman, what is it that I have to continue to leave behind? What may I be holding on to that interferes with me clinging to my wife, if you're the husband? Is it a notion of status or success? Is it a reputation? Is there some other idol in my heart? Is it pornography? Is it leisure time? Is it my selfishness? Or on the female side, the same thing. What's getting in the way? Is it my ideal fantasy of what my husband is supposed to be? And gossiping with my friends about how he doesn't meet that, that fantasy anymore. What is God asking me to leave behind so I can cling to my spouse on an even deeper level? Okay, so there's, there's one take home to go through and think, what else do I have to leave? And then how, how can I cling to this person anymore? Why? So we can be unified again. Right. Another way of saying that is what keeps us from connecting and how do we learn how to connect even better? Questions or thoughts about that so far? Got it? Okay. Um, now we're going to look at some of the scientific information as well. <clears throat> and a lot of this is taken from a researcher by the name of John Gottman, that actually, for those who know Gil Cracky, both he and I have done a lot of training under their stuff. The great part about his stuff is he's out in Washington State, and he's done research, research, research on couples. He has this thing called the Love Lab, where couples go there. (laughs) It's not what you think. (laughs) What was that phone number? (laughs) 
But he does have couples, like they, they spend the night in this, uh, you know, just artificial like apartment and he just monitors them, hooks them up to all kinds of sensors. He's essentially saying, I'm going to get all the information I can get about what happens in interactions. What happens for couples that are healthy and doing well and then what happens for, happens for couples that are completely unhealthy and end up getting divorced. So this information is not just some self-help book where here's what I, th- I think should happen. This is actually based on the research. So th- there's going to be a lot of information in this. We're not going to be able to march through every single piece of it. What, what I would suggest is just listen for something where you go, oh, wow, that, that kind of fits for us. Or maybe we're going on a bad path there. And make a note of that. Maybe discuss it later. I'm planting, planting a seed again. So these are his nine predictors of divorce. So hopefully you don't have too many of these in there. Otherwise, you should just divorce now and get it out of the way. I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, first one is a tendency towards more negativity than positivity. Now, this seems to make sense. Obviously, you wouldn't want to be negative. The research shows sustained balance in a healthy marriage you need a ratio of how much positive to how much negative. Anybody know? Five to one. Five to one. Okay, that's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, think about you're handling your lives. You've got kids. You're taking them to soccer practice. You've got all these different things, cooking dinner. You've probably got a few things you miss in the day. So let's say they were, even on a light day, maybe three or four or five things that you said, ah, why didn't you do this? Or That would mean if you had five, you'd need at least... 25 positive comments to keep it in balance. It's a lot, okay? My, my personal observations are we, we think a lot of positive things about our spouse, but we neglect to mention them, or we think that we've said them. Because, oh, I was thinking of her, oh, I thought this was great, but then I got busy and I didn't say anything to her. And I, I find that we probably only communicate about 10% of the positive things that we think. All right, so do the math. If you need 25 and you only do... 10%, you might need to think 250 positive things about your spouse. <laughs> so let's stop now so you can get started, okay? But couples that divorce, their average is actually 0.81 positives to every one negative, right? So you really don't want to fall on that, hey, we're just about equal with the positives and negatives. Keep the positives up, which means recognizing, verbally stating it, expressing it, communicating, being intentional, because by default, you're not going to do it. That's just human nature. So number one, keep the positives going. If there's too much negatives, you're putting yourself in that dangerous category. That's a focused, concentrated look. I like it. (laughs) I'm talking to you. That's right. (laughs) Uh, Part number two, we're going to talk about this in detail next week when we talk about conflict and fighting and stuff. So the couples who don't have that issue don't have to come next week. Um, Escalation of negative affect. This just means when you get into arguments, it starts to go very poorly for you. And the negative affect or the negative emotion gets to be uh, quite high. There's four things. I'll just mention them now. Like I said, we're going to go into detail next week. He said the, these are the killers that keep the, uh, the uh, negative affect escalating. Number one is criticism. And criticism is not just uh, something was wrong, but I state a complaint to you in a way that is sort of attacking and doesn't have the possibility of a solution attached to it. There's just something wrong with you. And I'm going to tell you there's something wrong with you. There's, there's not a place to go. So it's just like a little jab that I give you. That's criticism. So basically it's like saying, well, okay, you're the problem going on here. Second one is defensiveness. So 
you're going to tell me something and I, I'm not going to let it in. I'm going to justify myself, explain to you all the reasons why I did what I did. This is Men are very good at defensiveness, by the way. Uh, and this one is a way of saying, like, okay, you're the problem. Second one, I'm not the problem. Look, there's a reason I did all this. Okay? The third one is contempt. And this is probably one of the biggest killers. I've now come to view you not only as the problem, but you're not fixable. There's just something intrinsically wrong with you, whether it's in this particular area or just you globally. Now I'm starting to build resentment at how you do the things you do. Maybe a bitter root has taken hold. But basically now you've been shoved into this other category. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm living in contempt with you, right? So you're the problem and you can't be fixed. And the fourth one is stonewalling. I just shut you out. This is not going to go anywhere. And if you follow the progression, it makes sense. You're the problem. I'm not the problem. I can't fix you, so I'm not going to try. Right? We're going to get into those in detail next week, but that's just a little taster for it. If you have those, you're going to escalate conflict. This is, I don't know if you ever heard this. This is the guy that says he can predict if a couple is going to get divorced or not within watching them have an argument for five minutes. Okay. And after he came out with this, all these couples were calling him going, tell us if we're going to make it. <laughs> so, uh, and the, the things that he uses to determine it are those four things I just mentioned. Right? The criticism, the defensiveness, the contempt, and the stonewalling. If those characterize your arguments in that first uh, five minutes or so, then you are on a 96% likelihood path to get divorced in about 5.6 years. Okay, That's the numbers. So don't do those things. Okay. Let me keep moving. All right. I'm going to put these next two up here. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about this again later. Bids for connection. Remember from the beginning, it's not good for man to be alone. We're here to be connected. We're here to be intimate, to have that closeness, to not be alone. These bids for connections are things that each person in a partnership does that are inviting you to relate to them. Right? So uh, th- this is one I'll tell on myself here. I'm a psychologist, so I counsel people all day, which I really do enjoy quite a bit. Sometimes you're drained at the end of the day. And probably like a lot of men, I want to come home and I just want to veg out for a minute. And my dad's a retired coach and a PE teacher, so I like watching sports. So I may come in, and my wife's very gracious about giving me that space just to decompress. But I might flip a game on, and I go into my little zone, and she is coming in and saying, oh, who's playing? And in my mind, I'm like, you don't care about football? Why are you asking me this? You know, and then I'll say who's playing, and then she'll say, well, who's winning? And I'm thinking, the score's on the screen. What do you, why do you, <laughs> what do you want? Um, which is just idiotic of me. Because my wife knows, look, I like watching sports. She's not into it. She's stepping out of her zone to try to step into my world, to make a conversation about it, the best she knows how. And here I'm being the jerk, being upset that she's asking me about it, Right? So that, that was a bid for connection. She says, I know you need to relax, but I just want to feel connected. I'm, I'm, I'm coming and offering this to you, and I miss it. So we've got the turning away from, which is sort of like I'm not seeing it. I'm not letting it affect me. And then you've got the turning against, which is I come at you with hostility. You know, Another one for us is my wife loves to go shopping together. And Okay, I know she's a woman, but not just clothes shopping, but grocery shopping. And so in my guy mind, I'm thinking... Give me the list. I can go knock this out in 30 minutes. And then we'll spend less money, for one. And we'll go do something fun together afterwards. But for her, if she ever goes to the store, then she'll notice 
how many couples are shopping together and go, oh, I wish my husband was here with me. Maybe he doesn't love me. And so one of the things I've had to learn to do, which actually I'm kind of free from that now that we've got the child, we realize divide and conquer, but go shopping. And these, these uh, times last about three hours, and they're just mind-numbing for me. But this is... But, but glorious, baby. Thank you for all those times. Um, this is a bid for connection, right? So that would be me being hostile against it instead of embracing it. So if you, if you turn away or, or you turn against it, okay, you could be pushing towards divorce. Failure of repair attempts, okay? Um, I don't have my watch. Let's see. All right. I got to keep pushing. Every relationship is going to have conflict. That's not the issue. The issue is... Do we begin to get it resolved quickly? Right? Do we notice when the partner is trying to make a repair attempt? Or do we go and pout and sulk, give them the cold shoulder, point out something they're doing wrong, give a counterattack, sweep it under the carpet so we don't deal with it and just hope time passes and things kind of settle down versus going into the repair attempt? Number six, negative sentiment override. Remember we talked about contempt. This is probably the granddaddy of all the negative ones that you don't want to do. And negative sentiment override, if, if you can just imagine a black hole that will suck the life and the joy out of your relationship, this is it. Okay. In this one, things have gotten so bad that even when something positive happens, I'm seeing it through a negative filter. Right. So I can't even enjoy this other moment because I'm busy thinking about what just happened a minute ago. Even when you come and something good is going on, it just goes by, right? In this one, I've gone completely into the contempt and I'm seeing you as the bad guy, as the enemy. Um, so the positive doesn't have a chance. And, and one of the key things to think about here, for those that have studied social psychology stuff, there's something called the fundamental attribution error. Okay, the fundamental attribution error. And it, it just means this. When I make a mistake, my tendency is to minimize my responsibility for that and to blame it on, well, yeah, I know I was mean to you, but like I was tired from working so much and having to run the kids all around, so it was just a circumstantial thing. I kind of let myself off the hook. And then if something goes well for me, I do something positive, it's because I'm a great guy. I have these attributes about me, right? So something bad, oh, it's a circumstances. Something good, look at me. But when I evaluate you, my tendency when you do something wrong is to go, what is the matter with you? What, your intentions, I, I don't know why you would want to hurt me in that way. And then if something goes well, then I have the tendency to also view it as circumstantial. Well, I mean, you know, you got lucky in being nice to me that time. Okay. That fundamental attribution error fuels that negative sentiment override. Right. We're going to get into this more as well, but this is the one you want to watch out for. Okay, I'm going to go through these two quickly. Maintaining vigilance and physiological arousal and chronic diffuse physiological arousal. Okay, what this means is in your body, when you get into a tense place, you get worked up. You get very worked up. If you get too worked up, you experience something called flooding emotionally. And at that point, you are not able to have a good conversation. Men are more likely to flood than women are. So... Seriously, when they've, they've, they've analyzed all the body stuff related to this, a woman can handle intense conversations much better than a man can. Probably not a surprise to, to most of y'all. But the man meets a, meets a threshold where he stops thinking clearly and he's overwhelmed by the emotion and he's just trying to get out of it because he definitely feels like he's just trapped. 
okay? That's diffuse physiological arousal. You want to avoid that. In this, it's better to kind of call a timeout and come back to it later, okay? But one of the ways, this one before, the maintaining vigilance and physiological arousal, you can get yourself into this place. So for example, let's say something negative has happened. Now the rest of that day, you go and you stew on it and you think about it again. You go, how could he have done that? Or how could she have done this? This doesn't make sense. And you're rehearsing it in your brain. You're rehearsing it in your brain. You're rehearsing it in your brain. You're creating that physiological arousal in a negative sense for yourself. And that leads to an inability to see it from the other person's point of view. I'm flooding you with information right now. Just hang, hang in there. All right, this is the big one. Wives will cheer and go, thank you, Trey, for saying this. One of the, the ninth predictor of divorce is the failure of the husband to accept influence from his wife. It is interesting that the failure of a wife to accept influence from her husband is not predictive of divorce. I mean, I don't know all the reasons for that, but what they found is it's very, it's essential for the husband to be able to say, I want to hear what you have to say. And not just hear it, but I'm going to take it into consideration. When we make a decision together, you are vital to me. I'm receiving your influence and not just saying, I've got this covered. It's kind of like you're playing cards and when the husband holds the cards too close to his chest, I, I got this baby and let me do this. It doesn't work. But when he says, look, this is, this is what we're playing with. I'm thinking of making this move. What do you think? Okay, it's good. All right. All right, let's push through. Time's a ticking. <clears throat> so again, we're saying, what's the plot? What are we supposed to do? So here, here's some of the positive side of it. All right. Couples that do well, matches in conflict style. The essence of this is it does not matter if you argue a lot or if you never argue. It doesn't matter if you're the kind that kind of get your voice is raised when you're fighting and, and, and you do this. That's okay, actually. Or if you're just real soft and meek. Actually, the, the, the style doesn't matter as long as you can do it together in the same way. Right? It's amazing that it's, it's, the, it's the mismatch of that and the problem where no one's willing to engage in the other person's style. So I need to understand, how do you need to have this argument? Let me see if I can meet you where you are and match you in that way. Then we can work through it. Dialogue with perpetual issues, solving the solvable problems. Here's the Reader's Digest version. And we'll get into this probably next time as well. You can just draw a big line down the center and say, a lot of the stuff you're gonna argue about, you can't find a solution to. You can't. And when you're looking for a solution, you're spinning your wheels. So the key on that one, which I'll go into next time, is how can we identify, are we talking about that kind of thing? And the goal is talk well through it. This is that deep spiritual acceptance. You are not me. You are different than me. I accept you as you are. I accept that this is probably going to be an issue that we'll struggle with. And then the other side, this is the stuff we can do something about. Go do it. Solve those solvable problems. Have good conversation about the stuff that's not solvable. Right. View issues as joint problems. So again, remember, remember all the four, uh, the four negative patterns, right? The criticism and stuff. All of it is, I blame you. I don't see my own stuff. Here's the big antidote for it. I see it as a problem between us. Even if we're talking about your alcoholic behavior, that affects me. As a team, we're looking at what can we do in this marriage? Not that he's not responsible for that stuff, but what can we do? Or here's a conflict we have with the kids. Not, you have to get on board with me. What can we do together? We are the solution together. Right. Successful repair attempts, so they're able to get back on track quickly. 
ability to maintain that physiological calm during the conflict, right? I can calm myself down, I can soothe myself, so I am able to hear where you are. Accepting influence from the partner. Remember, it's most important for the husband to do this, but good for the wife to do as well. And then active building of friendship, intimacy, and positive affect. Say one more piece about this, and then I got one more area to show you, and then hopefully we'll, we'll end on time here. That negative sentiment override that I discussed, where you get into that horrible black hole place, where you think all these negative things. In, any idea how someone would change that? How would you change from that negative sentiment override to the opposite, which is positive sentiment override? Any ideas? Remove yourself from the situation. Remove yourself from the situation. Okay, and maybe do that repeatedly. Yeah, because the negative sentiment override is not just in one moment. It's like moment after moment. It's like built up inside. So it could be removing yourself from the situation helps. What else might help with that negative sentiment override, that whole cloud hanging over the relationship? Talking through it. Talking, talking through it with your spouse? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. That's, that's a good precursor to next week, as a matter of fact, as well. That's an excellent point. Any other thoughts about this? Prayer? Prayer? Yes. Where was that? These are the holy people over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that special? <laughs> Being intentional. Yes. So, so Mary actually gets the gold star with this one. <laughs> Because this is all those are all those are actually fantastic answers. But the amazing thing is, if you're in that negative sentiment override place, you can't just make yourself think differently. I just need to think better of him. Yes, you should think better of him, but you can't just make yourself do it in the moment. And all the prayer is important. All the stuff you mentioned is a way to keep building. But the key for this one is, if you build the friendship, you build the intimacy. And you can include in this the sexual intimacy as well. When you have that stuff going forward, it's a barrier to the negative sentiment override. So the idea that I'm just going to, I'm going to think my way through, I got to think positive thoughts, here's what scripture says, oh, that's good. But if I'm not investing in this relationship, if we're not building together, then we're in danger of going there. And we can't just think our way out of it. This is why, again, it's a relationship. If I'm investing in the relationship, we're taking time together to go on dates. We're doing fun stuff that we used to do. Another great way to build this is find new things that you do together. Pick up a new hobby together. This is why travel is so helpful. You go to a new place together. You get the positive excitement of exploring new stuff, and that becomes associated, equated with that other person. It feels good, right? So that's just it's a big key for so much is I can overcome any negative sentiment override by actively working on building the relationship that we do have. Okay, I got two minutes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you one more piece here, not this one. All right, and I'll leave this as a thought piece for y'all. So this, this is kind of an older psychological theory, but it's, it's played out in a lot of ways. This is a guy, Sternberg, and this is his triangular theory of love. You can probably see some connections with some of C.S. Lewis's views on love as well. I, I, I put this up there for you to take this as a seed and go, well, where, where are we strong? Where might we be weak? So the top part of the triangle, liking. I enjoy you. It's fun to talk to you. This is good. So there's just a basic intimacy. I'm getting, I'm getting to know you. 
On the bottom left, here's the infatuation, the passion. I'm drawn towards you. I have a strong interest in you. And then the right bottom, the empty love, they say it's just commitment. I'm committed to it. Okay, so by themselves, it's inadequate. If you look at the sides, if you have, I like this person and I'm infatuated with them, that's the romantic love, but it's missing the commitment. If I've got this other side, the liking and empty love, I know I'm going fast for y'all. This is like a great friendship. Man, I like hanging out with this person. We're committed. I'm going to be there for them. But there's no romance there. And then the bottom, that bottom line, the fatuous love, passion and commitment. This is like the Hollywood, oh, we just met each other and we're so interested now. And we said, let's get married, but we don't even know each other. Right? And the ideal you're going for, what they call this consummate love, we have intimacy, we like each other, passion, there's that romance, and then we're committed to each other. So I would just say, as you're thinking through, look at your marriage and go, where are we in that? Are there areas we would need to improve on so we can be doing the things, doing the part of the plot that will get us there? Okay, and next week we'll talk about conflict. All right, let me pray. Uh, God, thank you for this information. I do pray that some seeds were planted. Um, we know that when you start a good work in us, you're faithful to bring it through to completion. Uh, so do that with this, in Christ's name. Amen.